June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, stop we're it. reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degree's in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it are saying stop it please oh, we're God. reading books we're killing cedars at miss charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers at miss charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers at miss charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers hello and welcome to miss charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers a podcast about reading tonally confusing novels this is episode 10 shoot off your mouth not your arm. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Okama Theatre Group, or YTG, a non-profit theatre company based in Japan. Um, if you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. On this show, we have four wayward readers, including myself. Each episode, we sit down, talk about the week's assigned chapters, make presentations, which we call reader responses, and answer questions to compete for points. Our sensei, with a black belt in Victorian literature, and always ready to throw down, is Miss Charlotte. Good morning, class. The reader with the most points at the end of the show will be dubbed Teacher's Pet, and the reader with the lowest score, sometimes in the negative numbers, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but it is illuminated with many Christmas tree lights, making sure your shame is visible from kilometers away. I should know, I'm currently wearing it. When we complete our reading of Wuthering Heights, all these points will be totaled and the winner will get... We should probably figure this out sometime. Um, I'd tell you to email us with suggestions, but given that we're so close to the end, by the time you hear this podcast, it will be too late. Our wayward readers are, in order of physical endurance, Dr. Emmy Doe, who is probably running up a vertical cliff face for shits and giggles while we record this. And in fact, she is. Hi, Emmy. Hello. I'm just as loopy today. 
Sorry. Well, tell, tell us all where you are. This is too good to like not have on the recording. <laughs> I cycled 200 kilometers today, 190 kilometers yesterday to arrive in Toyama City. That is nuts. And where are you tonight? In Toyama. In a hostel in Toyama. Oh, sorry. Yes. All right. Daniel Wishes is uh, the next reader in order of physical endurance who, while he probably wouldn't run a marathon or bicycle 200, sorry, almost 400 kilometers in two days, um, as a puppeteer, he can keep his hands up in the air, uh, up the hot butt of a puppet for a very long time indeed. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing okay. You know, um, the thing about this whole virus situation is I have to wash my hands. I mean, everybody has to wash their hands a lot, but I, I'm doing it anyways to get off that puppet stink. So, <laughs> good plan, good plan. Um, Wait, next, we are have... you saying that before you <laughs> didn't wash the puppet stink off your hands? No, no, I was saying I'm I'm already in the habit, so oh, I was okay. prepared. Um, and our next reader in order of physical endurance is Judy Ito, who can climb stairs without huffing and puffing. How you doing tonight, Judy? <laughs> Guess because I'm the youngest, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. But how you doing tonight? Is <laughs> I am doing good. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and uh, finally, me who breaks a sweat when I get up from my chair. Although that could be the fact that it's super fucking hot in Yokohama today. Uh, and of course, as I said, Miss Charlotte Sampson is here, ready to use our own body weight against us. So, welcome everyone. Let's get reading. Why don't we start off with uh, the summary of these three chapters? So we're looking at chapters 30 uh, to 32. Chapter 30. Nellie hasn't spoken to Kathy, but gets all the dirty deets from Maidzilla. Everyone at Wuthering Heights ignored Kathy and forced her to sit in Linton's room and take care of him. But Kathy says, we need to get him to a doctor or he'll die. And everyone else is like, yeah, we know. That's why we're not getting him a doctor. Have you <laughs> met him? Doy. Linton dies. Kathy stays in her room for a fortnight. When Kathy finally comes out of her room because she's freezing to death, she acts like a real bee to everyone. And they're all like, geez, what's with the dude? And she's like, are you fucking serious? You made me sit in a room with Linton until he died. And the big reveal of the chapter that nobody saw coming, Nellie has finally finished her story. Lockwood says, yeah, cool story, bro. And on an unrelated note, I don't want to live here anymore. Chapter 31. Lockwood goes to Wuthering Heights and says he wants to move. And he agrees to sneak Kathy a note from Nellie. But when he drops it on Kathy's lap, she's like, man, I'm not a waste bipper, Ben. I'm a person. And she threw it on the ground. I ain't going to be part of this system, man. And Lockwood's like, it, it's a note from Nellie. I was doing you a favor, you idiot. And she's like, oh, a note from Nellie. Give me. But Heron takes the note and he's like, ah, ah, ah. I think Heathcliff might like to see this. And she's like, but, but, but I want it. So he gives it to her. She says she can't write back, though, because she has no paper. Heathcliff destroyed most of the books. Harridan has a secret stock, and she makes fun of Harridan's attempts to read them. So he gets mad. He takes the books, and he throws them on the fire. Man, he's an adult. Heathcliff returns. And he's like, oh, Lockwood, are you trying to get out of paying? And Lockwood's like, no, that's a damn insult. I'll pay you right now. And he pulls out his notebook. And Kathy is holding some forks and she looks at the notebook and she's like, wait, you, you have a notebook? You heard me say earlier that I need paper to write <laughs> Nellie back, right? 
Anyway, Heathcliff says to Lockwood, yeah, no, you're good. No hurry on the payment. And remarks how much Harrodin looks like dead Catherine. Uh, so he can't stand to see him because I guess it's turning him on. Lockwood has dinner with Heathcliff and leaves as soon as possible because that place is a total bummer. Chapter 32. Six months later, Lockwood is passing through the area on his way to devastate the Moors when he stops to look for lodgings and suddenly realizes, oh yeah, I'm still renting a house here. I could just totally stay there and save money on a hotel. So he goes to the Grange and discovers that Nellie works at the Heights now, and he heads over. He finds Nellie and she's like, hey Lockwood, I know I said the story was over two chapters ago, but some really juicy stuff happened since then, and I gotta tell you about it. Buckle up. Zilla totally left. That's why I got moved to the Heights. Joseph went to a fair in Gimmerton and won second place in a beauty contest. Heathcliff died. Kathy apologized to Harridan for being me. Wait, whoa, 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 hold up. Heathcliff died? Yeah, yeah. So you hungry, by the way? No, I'm not. What the hell happened to Heathcliff? Yeah. So anyway, after Harridan shot himself, Kathy started teaching Harridan to read. And they read all kinds of books. Long books, short books. No, no, no. Go back to the part where Heathcliff died. How? When? Where? Wait, hold up. Harridan shot himself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who cares? You're focusing on the wrong things, Lockwood. The important thing is Harridan and Kathy are totally falling in love and it's super cute and I love it. Okay, but how did Heathcliff... Oh, sorry, end of chapter. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's so, so good. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, we we got to spot the the deliberate mistake that Daniel put in his summary. I feel like there were several. <laughs> I think there was one. This one, <laughs> the glaring one. Go for it, Andrew. Right. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure Joseph did not win second place in a beauty contest. <laughs> that is correct. Because <laughs> I mean, you, you spotted my subtle secret mistake. Good job, Joseph. Andrew. Joseph would have been like, I mean, let's let's be honest. He would have been first place in the beauty of contest. Of course, he would have. Yeah. I mean, you know, Joseph in a swim in a swimsuit. Like, yeah. Hmm. Mm. Of course, the competition is pretty low in Gimmerton. To be, to yeah. Be fair. I mean, yeah, that that is fair. It is Gimmerton. Okay. Uh, time for the old vocab corner. So after two episodes of slim pickings, we have a fair number of words to puzzle over in chapters thirty to thirty-two. Probably because Joseph and Lockwood are back. Uh, the first puzzler is in the very first sentence of chapter 30, when Lockwood states that he was invited, this came up in Daniel's summary, was invited to devastate the moors of a friend in the north, and on my journey to his abode, I unexpectedly came, blah, blah, blah. So devastate the moors of a friend in the north. So clearly his friend, I'm pretty sure, doesn't want him to destroy his property, but was I, well, I was looking around for this, I couldn't come up with like any alternate meanings for devastate, which seems to be like... A back formation from devastation, which first appears in the 1400s, straight from Latin. You might be, you might be overthinking it a bit. Uh, does anyone have any other suggestions for Daniel? Well, according to my annotated copy of Wuthering Heights, it says oh, that you he bastard. Was, <laughs> he was just going to like hunt for things and like basically kill all the wildlife. Although I found some sexual meaning in it personally. I was going to say one of my, but my next line was like, what does that mean? So then, so clear brush, move out, go to the bars and hit up the local hotties. Oh, we're like, going to devastate the moors. Yeah. Like when frat guys are out drinking, like, yeah, yeah. we're going to devastate some puss tonight, bros. <laughs> <laughs> 
You did yep. not just say that. That's that's how I heard it when I read the book. <laughs> I mean, oh, it sounds sounds Lockwoodish. Yeah, it does sound like the kind of friends you'd have. Um, so, uh, right. Anyway, the fact is, the, in the end, it's not very important. It's just an excuse to get Lock Lockwood back into the north of England. The next up, we have the first of a few dialect words. And I, I hope you guys will forgive me for doing them kind of piecemeal, but I kind of like to do them in the order that they appear. Thrang. Yeah. Which is not only the sound you make when you kick the Tin Woodsman in the nads, thring, but in several northern, northern dialects, apparently means occupied or busy. So that's mm -hmm. thrang. Haughty shows up again. It showed up a few times. Um, and it's not that I need to know what this word means, but it, it shows up when Nellie Deans tells us what Zilla thinks of, uh, of Catherine. And while I'm sure we all know that this word means proud, I do find it kind of funny that it always sounds like people are referencing Catherine's looks as in she's a haughty woman uh very haughty and it does it does fit in with the uh with the with the frat boy uh theme we have going so far in this episode yeah that catherine's a haughty woman so uh fain is a word that i just you know i've read this word for years and i've kind of intuited the context i intuited it from context over the years but usually in the sense of like obliged to or willing to or in some cases pleased to or desiring to um, the last, which like desiring to is kind of archaic, but you'll come across it in Shakespeare a fair bit, which is where I came across it. Um, where it appears in the text here, Joseph was fain, I believe, of the lad's removal, referring to Linton's death. Um, my feeling based on the context is that this is another archaic meaning, which means pleased, glad, or rejoicing. So Joseph was happy that Linton was dead is essentially what that means. Um, I mean, aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> So, stalled. Stalled sounds like something that has stopped and is incapable of moving, which I guess is not far from the point, but I think when Kathy Jr. is saying, I'm stalled, Harriton, she means it in the sense of, like, she's penned up or put in a stall, caged like a farm animal. Oh. Uh, I mentioned that one because, you know, stall to me goes stall, like you stall a car, but it mm. meant like a stall, like an animal stall, I think. And I love this next word because it totally sounds made up. I mean, I guess all words are made up, but you, you, know, you know what I mean. Emulous. So Lockwood says to Kathy about Harriton's attempts at reading, he's not envious, but emulous of your attainments. Um, which is something I had to look up because I've never come across that word before, probably because it comes out of Lockwood's mouth and so is just, you know. <laughs> um, but it means eager or ambitious to equal or surpass another. And I just want to point out that's interesting in this sentence that I just read. Um, Emily Bronte used italics here to make sure we heard the line correctly. Because she doesn't do that a whole lot. But she does it twice in this chapter. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's, she doesn't do a lot of italics. I don't, I don't feel like. Maybe I'm, I missed that. But uh, it was really important that do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Okay. For the longest time, I thought this next word was simply the name of a character from, a Captain Britain com from the Captain Britain comic books. But the word Saturnine as Lockwood uses it to describe Heathcliff at dinner, grim and saturnine. It means um, possessing the temperament of someone born under the astrological influence of the planet Saturn. So uh, apparently at the time of this association, uh, Saturn was thought to be the furthest planet from the sun, which meant, I guess it was the coldest and had the slowest uh, orbit, had the slowest rotation. So it made a person influenced by it melancholy or sullen. So he's kind of saying he's grim and grim, um, but that's Lockwood for you, right? 
Now, when I say the word jocks, we probably all think about football or lacrosse players jamming nerds into their lockers and giving them squirrelies and atomic wedgies. And now I've always assumed that jocks were so named because when you play contact sports, you need to wear a jock strap to protect your ghoulies. Or if you're a tin woodsman whose jingly janglies make an amusing thrang when they are kicked. But when Joseph complains about Nelly pulling ale out of the cellar for Lockwood by saying, and then to get them jocks out of the Meister's cellar, I'm not pronouncing that properly. Uh, I assume he's not talking about athletic high schoolers or groin protection. So this is interesting. I couldn't find a specific meaning for this one. So jock is usually derived from the name Jake. And it was just used for like lots of things, including like a lot of occupations in the North. So the closest I found was like jock, meaning packed lunch in a Yorkshire dialect. But he's obviously not talking about that. My guess is this is some kind of creative spelling based on jo Joseph's accent. Maybe he's saying jugs, which kind of maybe refers to ale. That is really my best guess, unless somebody has some insight there. The next one, you had to bear with me for a sec because I need to play you the audio. I found someone who could duplicate a Yorkshire dialect for me. Master lad, he said, and bide there. I was gone up to my own room. This oil's neither menseful nor seemly for us. We mun side out and search another. And there it is. What? That was... That's so hard to reading hear. It, reading it um, in kind of normalish, a normalish accent is, tuck these into the maester lad, he said, and bide there. Eyes gang up to my own ram. This hoil's neither menseful nor seemly for us. We mun side out and search another. So that's with my Canadian accent sort of placed over this weird spellings. Okay, so I've made a point so far not to bother too much with like big chunks of dialect from Joseph. Um, if you're reading along with us, uh, if you're listening to this and you're reading along with us, you can generally Google just in quotation marks, Wuthering Heights Joseph accent. And the first link will likely be a page that translates a whole bunch of them. But there are a couple words in here that caught my interest. So hoil, it's derived from the word hole, like hole in the ground, and generally means room or like place your abode, your place where you live. Neither mensful or seemly. It would be hilarious if this meant Joseph thought that the only seemly places were those full of men and might answer a few questions I have about his character, but that's really, that's not it. Um, I couldn't find the etymology of this word. Sadly, it just means decent. So mensful means decent. Um, we mun side out. Mun just means shall, will, or must, probably must in this case. It's a good example of a lot of northern dialect words coming from Old Norse or Viking roots, I guess partly because they were under Viking rule longer than most of the south. Anyway, we mun side out. Side out simply means move out, so we must move out. Okay, and we'll wrap up with one last word from Joseph, Mitch. Talking about Kathy's books, he, say, he says he'll pick up any he sees lying around, and it will be Mitch if Kathy can find them again. And again, sadly, I couldn't find the origin of Mitch, partly because it's often used uh, as a way of writing a northern pronunciation of much, but it simply means unlikely. So it'll be unlikely if you ever find them again. Anyway, for, uh, for those of you who thought it was Mitch that I'd ever finish, well done. Let's move on to the reader report. Top 10 list. Top 10 list. All right, let me see. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, so I don't really do a David Letterman impression, but I'll... I'll try to follow the format of a top 10. So, uh, hey, everybody, have you uh, have you heard about this, uh, this Kathy and Harridan? Apparently, uh, yeah, you know, Kathy and uh, Harridan, they're uh, they're dating. They uh, 
or if you can call it dating, they develop some kind of relationship over books. I guess they both love books, even though Harridan can't read. And, you know, Kathy's teaching him how to read and they're kind of bonding. So so tonight we're doing Kathy and Harridan's top 10 favorite books. Kathy and Harridan's top 10 favorite books. Number 10, Heathcliff's Heart of Darkness by Nellie and Joseph Conrad. Number nine, Thrushcross Grange and Wuthering Heights, A Tale of Two Shitty Bleak Houses by Darl's Chickens. Darl's Chickens, the Monty Python reference. Number eight, Crime and Totally Getting Away With It by Heathcliff Dostoevsky. <laughs> Number seven, Low Expectations by Lockwood Dickens. Number six, Pain Air by Linton Bronte. Pain Air. I'm sorry, I'm saying it wrong. Pain Chair is what I meant to say. <laughs> Number, let me start that again. Number six, Pain Chair by Linton Bronte. Pain Chair. That's, that one's a bit of a thinker. Number five, The Luck of Bella Linton by Isabella Makepeace Thackeray. The Luck of Bella Linton. Number four, Bronte's Inferno by Bronte <laughs> Alighieri. I'm not sorry about that pronunciation. <laughs> Bronte's Inferno. Number three, Gimmerton Fair by Joseph Makepeace Thackeray. Gimmerton Fair. Number two, The Strange Case of Dr. Kenneth and Mr. Heathcliff by Robert Louis Stevenson. And the number one favorite book of Kathy and Harridan, the Ballad of I'm Chevy Chase and You're Not by Thomas Percy. <laughs> that was the top 10 favorite books by Kathy and Harridan. Thank you very much, Daniel. I, I would have gone for, for, for Dr. Dr. Kenneth and Mr. Kenneth. <laughs> given how schizophrenically he's referred to as either of those two things at any given time. But That's nice. True. That was That's funny. a good point. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, all of those books were books, um, that were available at his, that like, they're not anachronistic. They're all titles that would have been available at that time, by the way. Really? What is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde written? I thought that was later in in the Victorian era. I'm, I'm, when, when did Robert Louis Stevenson live? Sorry, not to call you out on that, but now I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I didn't, I didn't put that much. (laughs) Pretty sure you could, I'll just assume you're right. I, I I may not be like I'm, yeah. Well, I I'm tried. Not, Way no. later, eighteen eighty six. But Oopsie. but still Victorian. Oh boy! Oh ooh. Um, Andrew minus five points. There's a big difference between early Victorian and late Victorian. Sorry, that's a that's a point of professional pride. Not gonna let that stand. Big difference between 1847 and 1886. Yeah, I was just saying it was it, it was written within the reign of Queen Victoria. I'm trying to give. I'm trying to Victoria throw him a bone. Victoria was here. on the throne for a long fucking time, Andrew. Indeed, yes. <laughs> That's like saying the Beatles are contemporary to Lady Gaga because they both lived while Queen Elizabeth II was monarch. Daniel's the one that actually has to be given a mark here. Um, trying not to let my personal dislike of bad puns influence the grade. Um, but I mean, everyone else seemed to like it. So, yeah, let's say B+. 
You were crying at one point, Miss Charlotte. Was that in pain or because it was funny? Uh, mostly pain. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, I like good puns. There are not many good puns in the world just to go around. There's, there's, most of them are bad. I mean, I wanted to be as, as accurate to the assignment as possible. And if you've seen David Letterman's top 10 list, that's like the level of humor that you're going to get. That is true. Hmm. Now, B plus. Thanks. Still B plus. <laughs> Time for discussion questions. Discussion. All right. So, wow. Um, things really start moving along here. Uh, this late in the novel. Um, I mean, the biggie is that Heathcliff is dead, and uh, we're going to get into the actual story of that next episode. But the uh, thing that I wanted to talk about, Team Harriton wins in the end. Who saw that coming? Not I. I mean, he was the only one left, really, so... <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of a default win since he's the only one still alive of marrying age. Well, it could have been Lockwood. That's what Nellie was gunning for. Yeah, mm. she was. That's true. Yeah, but as we've seen, Nellie's judgment isn't always that great. She kind of fucks up a lot of important decisions. And I think that trying to play matchmaker for Lockwood and... Kathy would have gone just just dreadfully awry. Well, well it did, because Lockwood was too, like... He was too Lockwood. I don't think he's ready to settle down. He needs to get out there and devastate, devastate the Moors. Devastate the Moors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, he's a man who likes his life of leisure. So here's the part that I wanted to talk about. In her article, Natural Supernaturalism and Withering Heights, uh, Anne Williams, and I'll, and I'll put, a citation, put a citation in the website for people who are following along, suggests that there is a hint of uh, folklore and fairy tale uh, in Wuthering Heights, as should be pretty apparent already. But she identifies the uh, tale Beauty and the Beast as sort of, uh, I see Andrew already kind of wrinkling his brow. As something of a, a, a prototype for the situation that Kathy the Younger finds herself in. Um, quote, Heathcliff has the fairy tale beast's wealth and power, while Linton's personal beastliness provokes a repugnance with which Catherine overcomes in a lesson of loving unselfishly. Harriton, Heathcliff's son in spirit, enacts the part of the beast transformed through love into man and Prince Charming. Beauty must overcome her repugnance toward the beast, her lingering attachment to her father, and the beast's power over her before she can live happily ever after. Kathy faces the same obstacles. End quote. So, this is pretty reductive of William's argument, but let's just stick to the core of it. That... We can read aspects of folklore and fairy tale and the Beauty and the Beast in particular playing out in this drama of Harriton's transformation into sort of a Prince Charming. Do we buy that? 
If yes, what about that is an attractive reading to you? If not, why not? Like, does this, does it make us feel more satisfied that we have this narrative of Harriton being lifted out of his mire of ignorance? Or is this far too optimistic an ending? Does it maybe clash with what we, with what we already know of the two? Is this a poetically appropriate ending? Is it a forced ending? What do we think? Does Kathy love unselfishly? And if so, who is it? Is that referring to her unselfish love of Linton? Because that was that was in reaction. That was basically more of a fuck you to Heathcliff. That was like, I'm going to take the only thing you've left me and like make something nice out of it. I wouldn't call that unselfish. I would call that vengeful. <laughs> um, sort of like, yeah, I feel like she's sort of trying to flip him the bird with that. Like, so I'm going to love Linton because this is what this is the position I'm in and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't sound unselfish. I mean, I would I would ask, can you can you love someone unselfishly? That's kind of weird. What does that even mean? <laughs> what kind of rabbit hole are we going down now? I thought we were talking about Wuthering Heights. Are we talking about you personally? Like, what's going on? No, I, I mean, because... Do, do, you, do you ever... Do you ever like, no, I mean, like, okay, if you're some kind of, like, saint or something, that you love everybody unselfishly, and like, oh, that person does has no clothes. I will take off... I will remove my clothes and give them to, to that person. But you can even say then that the person's doing it because they think they're going to be punished by God if they don't, or they want the reward in heaven, or blah blah blah. Like it's it's like it's it's a weird it's a weird sorry the phrasing struck me because anybody doing anything in this book for an unselfish reason just it the the idea just blows my mind. So you can have the discussion that can anyone do anything for an unselfish reason? If you could do something good, but you might still be motivated by like wanting to do good, which in a kind of way is selfish, right? Like. You want, you get something out of it. In Beauty and the Beast, was she doing things unselfishly? Well, that's, that's sort of one of the, the big elements of Beauty and the Beast as a fairy tale is that, so we're going back to the, we're, we're going to go back to, to the original, which I believe is Charles Perrault. A story told through time. I mean, everybody knows that that. That story is about Stockholm Syndrome, right? <laughs> <I> consensus. <laughs> That's what I was trying yes, to say. Yes, I, I think that Kathy probably does have Stockholm Syndrome. She's been stuck there for a long time. Like, who else is she, you know, what else is she going to do? And it's not like she knew anybody, like, outside of that world, right? Like, yeah. she has no connections outside of Wuthering Heights or Thrushcross Grange, whereas presumably the beauty did, like... Also, I'm like, is no one else tired of this whole, like, she's so beautiful, therefore we love her, even though she's a complete biatch? Like, I'm, I'm, it's just so frustrating to me. All right, so why don't we do a little bit of a refresher on Beauty and the Beast and how it is set up in the original fairy tale. So, one of the things that we should probably think about when we're talking about fairy tales written in the 18th, 17th century is that a lot of them were written as instructive for children and in particular young women and girls. 
and the and the Beauty and the Beast narrative um, is sort of commonly accepted as a way of preparing young girls for eventual arranged marriages with men they don't know who might be of a beastly temperament. It's sort of a institutionalizing the idea that, you know, if you've got a shitty husband, maybe you can fix him. You know, if you're nice enough and you are self-sacrificing enough, you can bring him around and he will become nice and charming and shit. But where we get to the unselfishness, the way that Beauty and the Beast is set up in the beginning is that there are actually three daughters. So there's a merchant, his three daughters, the youngest, Beauty. The other two are just sort of regular, average, beautiful, I guess, which, I mean, kind of sounds like, like Perrault was slagging them off a bit, but whatever. Yeah, they were called, they were, they were um, named, they were named OK and Butterface. Anyway, so the father goes off on a business trip and the other two daughters ask for all sorts of presents. Um, but Beauty is just so generous and so self-sacrificing. She will not ask for a single thing, but her dad insists and says, eh, okay, fine, just bring me a rose, because I like roses, which of course is where the dad picks the rose from the beast's garden, and that kicks off the whole, the whole thing. So given that framing of unselfishness as a virtue... The idea of unselfish love that I think we're, we're supposed to look for here is more akin to self-sacrifice. And, I mean, you can say that Kathy's devotion to Linton is a big fuck you to Heathcliff, and it, it, it kind of is. But Linton's a hard dude to love, isn't he? And especially at the end of his life, everyone else has given up on him. She's the only one nursing him through it. So, Andrew, I'm not sure that I buy your argument here. Just because if we want to go down that road, you might as well just say that unselfish love of any kind is impossible. I'm pushing back here simply because so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to turn down like an optimistic because I actually am mm. I'm more optimistic about what happens with Kathy and Harriton. I'm actually somewhat optimistic about that. Uh but I feel like the thing with Linton was really it, it was really just like she ha she had no choice. I don't think it can be unselfish if you really have no choice. Right. Okay. Well, that changes things a little bit. I mean, Heathcliff does like say that it's her job to take care of him. It's like her one responsibility in the Wuthering Heights household. So I suppose if we were to, say, moderate what you said, it's a sort of, it's a sort of unselfishness dictated by circumstance. Does that is that a fair synthesis? I think it's kindness. I don't know. I I just think unselfishness is such a tricky thing to talk about. Um, but it's I, kindness. I would go for she shows him kindness. And I think we can leave her motivations. She hasn't shown like a lot of, other than to her father, she's not shown a lot of like kindness to anybody. Is Daniel holding up a tarot card? 
Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's the strength card. It's kind of like the card of Beauty and the Beast. Oh. You know. Can we just ask the question? Does this do, do we do we buy this Beauty and the Beast similarity? Like, is there more than a surface level resemblance regarding Kathy and Linton? Any of them? Well, because the yeah, the argument here is that the beast is sort of split into three people, depending on their aspects. Like, because Heathcliff has the money and power, and he's the one f who's keeping her there. Linton is the one with the repugnance that she has to get over. And Harriton is the one who undergoes the, re the, the reformation, the one who, whose character changes. I guess because it's divided in the three characters... It's a little confusing to me. But, for example, with Heritan, I don't see it. But that's because I guess part of the analogy is with the other two characters. I don't know. I mean, the thing is, is there's only seven plots so you can really compare any story to any story i could also say that it's a little bit like goldilocks and the three bears where you know linton is is too small and um you know heaven's just right and heathcliff's too too big and yeah you know i mean really like i'm not gonna say it's wrong the whoever made that comparison i mean it's valid right but I, you know, I don't really know what the question is. I feel like I feel like there's superficial things, but especially once you get to the point of like dividing it, it's like, oh, well, each person represents a different aspect. I mean, I guess you can kind of squeeze that square peg into the round hole a little, but it, it feels like Jane Fonda to me. It feels like a stretch. Jane Fonda, you mean yeah, like you know, in the movie the, Barbarella or like on no, Golden I mean like Pond it, in aer what? aerobics videos from oh. the 80s? Oh. Make it burn. What a fresh reference, Andrew. I'm giving you zero points for that relatable <laughs> reference that surely a 2020 audience is bound to pick up straight away. I'm writing it right say... here. Plus zero points for adding nothing, Andrew. Can I, just, can I just say Jane Fonda, one of the greatest actresses, feminists, and political activists of our time, and the thing you remember her for is her aerobics videos. Bit uncool. No, it's the thing I thought of when I thought about it's a stretch. Oh, stretching. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Judy, thoughts on the Beauty and the Beast issue? Um, is it seeing as these three characters as part of Kathy's journey? I'm confused on the analogy. Well... That's actually a good way to think of it. It's less about what those characters... It's less about how we map those characters onto the fairy tale as the function they serve in Catherine's development. So that if you were to take all three of them and smush them together, that's what they do for Catherine, the same way that the Beast does that for, for, for beauty. Um, they represent certain challenges that she has to undergo in order to both become a proper wife, but also learn how to reform the beast. If, if we think about it, that's what the, a lot of these fairy tales are. As I said, instructional, um, to teach some sort of moral lesson. 
And the moral lesson of the original Beauty and the Beast is that it's, we can talk about how shitty a lesson it is, uh, but the lesson is supposed to be, if you can embody certain virtues, you can transform even the most beastly husband into a perfect gentleman. I think Kathy's development isn't really doesn't have to do with the how she deals with these three beasts, but more of how the develop the the tragedies affect her and like she has all these losses and how she has to deal with them under her given circumstances. Not necessarily the beast themselves if that makes sense so this is less about her sort of navigating these beastly men and just more about her coping with circumstances i mean i don't think she, she, I, she uh, I mean they're three different people so obviously she deals with them differently but i don't think the way that she dealt with linton kind of influences the way that she dealt with Harriton directly. So, like, she, she she didn't really learn any lessons from Linton? She just sort of... Lessons as in, I mean, I mean, I am... Sh I don't know how to word it. Maybe sit with it. Like, just kind of sit mm -hmm. with the idea of what sorts of challenges does she have to overcome in the way that she navigates having to live with these three incredibly difficult dudes. I mean, I guess there's Joseph, too. I'm not sure who he is in the analogy. Cogsworth. Does that make Zilla... I was going to say, does that make Zilla Mrs. Potts? <laughs> anyway. What about the issue of, like, authorial intent? Like, my, I think my problem is I, I can't imagine, like, misanthropic, dog-punching Emily Bronte being like... Hmm, I think I shall end my grim, weird novel with an admonition to young females to that they can be the transformative force in the life of a grumpy man. Well, Andrew, you're assuming that... You're assuming that the representation of a sort of similar Beauty and the Beast-esque situation is an endorsement of it, or of the ideologies underpinning it. Because it's... I, I would say impossible to refer to any sort of older work, even obliquely. I mean, this is this is not directly textual. This is sort of Anne Williams seeing some potential inspiration, if not directly, then just sort of from the sort of jumble of ideologies of feminine self-sacrifice and the reformation of the beastly husband that are just kind of in the air culturally. I mean, that's, that's another thing to, to bear in mind, that when we talk about influence in a text, it doesn't always have to be intentional or conscious on part of the author. It can just be, we know what the ideologies of the day were concerning the way women are expected to sort of self-sacrifice and reform a, a, a bad husband. And how that is sort of played out archetypically in the Beauty and the Beast narrative. 
And so whether there's direct intent or not, we can still use that to comment on the same sort of thing happening in Wuthering Heights. But that doesn't mean that this is a wholesale endorsement of that ideology. And I think it's good for us to bear that in mind so that we can kind of poke at what exactly does the text have to say on the archetype of the beastly husband and the 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 endlessly self-flagellating beauty who, whose devotion brings him around. Well, so this is what I think is like confusing to me. I guess this does happen in Beating the Beast, but I just feel like she's she's in a really horrible position. Like she has no choice. And yeah, in the she's like thrown every tactic at all of these guys. Like she's tried to be strong, she stand up for herself. And finally she's like, well, I can be miserable in this situation or fine, I'll be nice. Especially with Harriton, I feel like that's like finally where she goes. Am I reading that wrong? I might be reading that wrong, but that's what I saw. And and to me, the fact that he would be so smitten with her after her just being a complete bully this entire time, like, it drives me nuts. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think well, the reason Kathy lends a hand to Harriton doesn't really have to do with how Heathcliff or Linton or like their relationship with Kathy's relationship with her, uh, Heathcliff or Linton, but more of like that she's tired of the situation and she's just chose to be nice. I don't think she was that much of a, mm, she wasn't nice before. Like she was also nice to Linton, as Andrew said before. I don't see a Kathy character journey so much here i think that this i said before i was more sort of hopeful and optimistic about harriton and kathy because i think to me what's interesting about them is they've both made they both have like a willingness to change they both reached out their hands they both had them slap back literally in one case and, and not hand but face but unlike everybody else in this novel they, they seem to be willing to give each other other chances and they seem to be willing to change. And there, I think there was chemistry like the first time they met, and that just got buried under all this horse shit. I think it's sort of like being able to being able to clear the horse shit by like being willing to change, being willing to forgive. Like everybody else is so revenge driven in this novel. They're revenge driven. They, no one wants to change who they are. They want other people to change for them. And that's not that's not what hap that's not what happens here. And actually, I think it's quite. I was quite surprised by how how nice <laughs> nice it all was um how kind of it seems to have worked out reasonably well and you could say like yeah okay she was kind of she's kind of confined she's nowhere else to go she's kind of stuck there but i think these are two people who there there was it was really clear that there was something at the beginning and it just got everybody and it's not just their horse shit it's everybody else's horse shit that got put on top of it and they sort of been willing now that everybody else is dead to clear that table a little bit 
So I know, I think it's less the Beauty and the Beast thing of like reforming someone, uh, but their seeming willingness to sort of put aside their own damage and actually relate to each other. I I think it was Harriton being awesome hi, hi. and not Kathy. <laughs> anyway. Well, that's a good point to bring up, Emmy. Why don't we take a look at the chapter where they have a bit of a reconciliation? So in chapter 32, and we'll kind of see who kind of takes the first turn and how that plays out. So we have Nellie Dean showing up at Withering Heights, and one of the first things that comes out of Catherine's mouth, the first sort of line of dialogue that gets reported, he's just like a dog, is he not, Ellen? She once observed, or a cart horse? He does his work, eats his food, and sleeps eternally. What a blank, dreary mind he must have. Do you ever dream, Harriton? And if you do, what is it about? But you can't speak to me. Etc., etc. He's perhaps dreaming now, she continued. He twitched his shoulder as Juno twitches hers. Ask him, Ellen. So, kind of standard, you know, Kathy trash-talking Harriton stuff. So then, in response, we have some... So yeah, this is on Easter Monday. And Kathy just kind of says out of the blue, I found out, Harriton, that I want, that I'm glad, that I should like you to be my cousin now, if you had not grown so cross to me and so rough. So Kathy's sort of extending this bit of an olive branch and then just kind of yoinks his pipe out of his mouth, which pisses him off. The part that I want to get at is a few lines down. Kathy says, it is not I who hate you, it is you who hate me, wept Kathy, no longer disguising her trouble. You hate me as much as Mr. Heathcliff does, and more. To which he replies, you're a damned liar began Earnshaw. Why have I made him angry by taking your part then a hundred times? And that when you sneered at and despised me, etc., etc. And she responds with, I didn't know you took my part. And I was miserable and bitter at everybody. But now I thank you and beg you to forgive me. So if the question is sort of who relents first... Kathy. Yeah, wow. I mean, clearly, Kathy is being manipulative. Kathy is flirting. She's going out of her way to make things right. All right, so we have some people who are like, yeah, Kath Kathy's the one who takes the initiative, and then Emmy comes in with the, but is there an ulterior motive? Mm -hmm. What do we make of this complicated little dance that they have to do before they can just admit that they'd rather be friends than enemies? Yeah, I so I think she's being the bigger person-ish, <laughs> but I don't think it's for selfless reasons. I guess that alludes to the point that you were making before, Andrew, like what's really unselfish. Right, but I mean, it could be selfish to want, like, to smooth over a relationship with someone because it would make your life better, or because... This is someone like on some level, maybe you think you kind of like and you've kind of shat all over it. Like, you know, you can. It comes back to like, is anything selfless? You have a motivation for everything. And what I do feel... you think, readers, <laughs> listeners, what readers, listeners, fans of the podcast write in and tell us, do you think it's possible for any human to exhibit a 
completely a, unselfish <laughs> act. It's a that's, it's the question philosophers have been asking for a thousand years, but I think we can solve it right here <laughs> on Wayward Readers. Write in and let us know your answer. Thank you, Daniel. I'm going to give you four points uh, because I think that we're we're sort of pussyfooting around it a little bit. Does their relationship need to be ideal? Does it need to have completely unselfish and idealistic motives before it can even start? No. So why don't we look at the dynamic that's been keeping them apart? Hmm. Look at Emmy's face. Emmy is a romantic. <laughs> That when you said that, when I said no, I mean, he's like, oh, well. So you, you, you are, as always, free to disagree or to amend my, my interpretation here. I think that if we're going to be talking about Beauty and the Beast as a sort of a frame, a loose framework, and again, just to, just to make this clear, in the Anne Williams article, the Beauty and the Beast thing is a smaller section of it. It's not the main point of her article. It's sort of mentioned in passing as a potential, let's say, structural guide to how we can look at Wuthering Heights and that little romance drama that plays out towards the end. But if we're going to take a look at the notion of the Beast being exemplified in different characters, do you think there's maybe room to talk about how beauty can be split into a couple of different characters, namely Kathy and Harriton. Harriton is kind of a captive beauty himself. I mean, everyone, Lockwood included, alludes all the time to Harriton being just a gorgeous hunk of a man. Yeah, it gets weird sometimes, doesn't it? And how he's just sort of languishing in all of his, his hunky splendor up at Wuthering Heights, very much in, in the way that beauty has been shut up in this castle in service to a beast. Like, Harriton and Kathy, they're both kind of beauties in service to the beastly Heathcliff. So even though there is a drama of sort of the more, let's say, conventional drama of the female beauty redeeming the beastly man into perfect husband material, might there not also be to some degree, and this might be a little bit of a stretch, but I want to kind of workshop it, is there not also a sense that Harriton's humility, in a sense, kind of shames Catherine into being less beastly herself? Like, it seems that either of them take some of their beastliness from what Heathcliff has done to them. He has literally kidnapped Kathy at one point and more or less locks her away at Withering Heights. I mean, presumably the door's not locked all the time, but it's not like she had anywhere else to go, reasonably. So they're both captive under this beastly influence. And so I think there might be some room to think of them as reforming each other. I'd buy that for a dollar. Affirming or dissenting opinions from the rest of the class? I just, maybe this is like... I just feel like her transformation from thinking that he's an animal to suddenly having respect for him was just so quick that I don't buy it. Barely even friends, then somebody bends unexpectedly? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, and, and there's, there's something, there's something neat that, I, that you said earlier. Um, I'm actually going to give you some points for that. Give you three points. That 
Emmy, you said that it was kind of self-serving in the sense that it behooves her to have a friend there. Like it's not it's not just that she's she wants to be nice to Harriton. She wants to have somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. Which I mean, we can talk about to what degree selfish motives behind unselfish acts sort of can mar the unselfishness of it. But to me, if there's anything Beauty and the Beast-esque about this whole arrangement, it's that they're just making the best of a bad situation. Mm -hmm. And once Heathcliff's influence wanes, sort of once he goes so deep into his depression that he just doesn't give a fuck anymore, mm -hmm. it's almost as though they're both free to, to kind of open up a bit, drop their, their mutual defenses, and realizing that they're in an intensely shitty situation, they both sort of mutually decide that they'd, you know, as long as the other doesn't absolutely hate the other the way they thought, well, they might as well make a go of it. Hmm. What, what tarot card are you holding up, Daniel? So I've, I've put all of this into uh, an explanation, like a tarot card reading. So Heathcliff, Heathcliff is the devil. You can see like little, uh, little Harridan and Kathy, Kathy and Harridan down there. They're, they're under the power of Heathcliff. Heathcliff is the devil card. Uh, little Kathy is, she's temperance. And Harridan is the nine of clubs, right? Lockwood is the fool, right? Linton is the four of cups, right? This is a Rider weight up Coleman tarot deck. So look it up at home. And of course, um, Joseph is the Hierophant. So it's all, it's all in the tarot. Don't know that was directly relevant to the point, but uh, that was a very creative presentation, Daniel. I'll, I'll, I'll give you two points for it. Thank you. I would have given you more points if it had been as a reading response. Actually, I would have given you a grade if it was a reader response, so fuck it. I think that, yeah, Heathcliff just casts such a long shadow over their relationship that it's almost as uh, as though they have to they have to come to terms with and undo the damage that he's done to them already before they can let down their guard enough to admit that they don't hate each other absolutely like they've been kind of pitted against each other anyway we'll we'll see what happens in terms of wait something's going to happen oh my goodness there's two chapters left something else we're going to see what happens in terms of their relationship and Heathcliff's final end um, in the next episode. But I don't know. I guess if I wanted to leave it somewhere for now, because we should probably move on, is that their coming together has as much to do with their coming to terms with the trauma of their own captivity, in a sense. Hmm. That once they sort of except that they've both been incredibly hurt by Heathcliff. Then they kind of, they at least have that in common. And that's common ground enough for them to begin their relationship. 
Now we'll see how for how it plays out further. We see little hints already that Harriton, you know, has kind of reformed into a nice, polite dude by the time Lockwood sees him again. But we'll see how that plays out in the next two chapters. Bronte Bites! It's the tasty treat you can warm up in the oven. You can eat 12 or you can eat a dozen. You can eat them dry or you can eat them wet. Bronte Bites from Miss Charlotte. Nicely done. Not sure I like the rhyme at the end, but yeah, I'll give you a point for it. He did He did come up with that off the top of his head. 1.5 points. <laughs> That's how much your head is worth, Daniel. Or the top of it, anyway. So for today's Bronte Bite, uh, I wanted to talk about not a Bronte, but a close friend of the Brontes, uh, Ellen Nussie, N-U-S-S-E-Y. She was an old school friend of Charlotte Bronte's. Uh, they both met in their early teens. Um, Charlotte was 14. She was 13. They met at Rowhead School. So that's, that's not the typhus tuberculosis school. It was a different one, a, a better school. They got on well with the school mistress, Miss Wooler. Um, Charlotte actually taught at Rowhead School for a little bit once she got a bit older. Anyway, but... Charlotte and Ellen maintained a lifelong correspondence. Ellen also knew the rest of the family, Emily included. At the time of Charlotte Bronte's death, Ellen had amassed just a, a vast quantity of her letters. And it's actually thanks to the letters that Ellen Nussie kept that we know anything about her. She shared that collection of letters with um, Charlotte Bronte's friend and the author Elizabeth Gaskell which Gaskell then turned into The Life of Charlotte Bronte, sort of the first biography, um, which also incidentally includes stuff about the other Brontes. Was, Charlotte Bronte was kind of the superstar of the family. Um, the others were, I don't want to say an afterthought, that sounds really mean, but most of the scholarly attention was paid to Charlotte. She was also the one who lived the longest, so she was just more prolific because she was around longer. When Anne Bronte was on her deathbed in 1849, Ellen Nussie was right there with her. Charlotte had gone to visit Anne because she had she'd done the very English thing of going to the seaside to recuperate from her tuberculosis in Scarborough. But Ellen Nussie accompanied them, sat with Anne Bronte at her deathbed. She was also one of the two witnesses to Charlotte Bronte's marriage in 1854 to the Reverend Arthur Bell Nichols. And that same Reverend Nichols actually wanted to destroy, just burn, all of the correspondence of Charlotte to Ellen. Ellen was like, no, nah, screw that. And as a result, we now know a lot more about the Brontes, especially Charlotte Bronte, than we otherwise would have. Yeah, it seems more like Arthur Bellend Nichols by the sound of him. Uh <laughs> Sorry, that was... <laughs> I love that! What was that noise? That's amazing! <laughs> That, that was my very sarcastic way of saying, yeah, good joke, Andrew. <laughs> it was not a good joke. But fine. I've been really hard on you today. I'll just give you two points was... for it. <laughs> for a bellend joke. Two points for the fucking bellend joke. Do you suppose that Emily Bronte would be horrified or amused by this podcast? Is this a pop quiz question now? What's going on? <laughs> I mean, I think it would blow her mind, the technology to record audio and play it back. <laughs> I think she'd be really impressed. 
I, yeah, I think there'd be a lot of stuff she had to get over before she had to worry about the contents of the podcast. I mean, the, the <laughs> fact that it's like going through a wire to people's computers around the world or. But no, the answer is no, she wouldn't like the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like much, did she? Maybe she could punch the podcast in the head. She'd feel better about it. The first commercial telegraph was patented in uh, June 1837. So the notion of sending information across a wire would have been possible. Hmm. But yeah, there's, there's a, there's a few point. steps you have to take before you get to the telegraph to the internet. So that's the Bronte bite. Delicious. All right. I guess that we're on to the cathartic pop quiz. We are. So let me just pop it up here. So just for anyone joining us and joining us right at the end of the book, that would be really weird. But uh, the cathartic pop quiz is cathartic for Miss Charlotte, not for the rest of us. This is where Miss Charlotte gets to deride our answers and treat us the way she can't treat her actual paying students. So at the top of chapter 30, how long ago was Nellie's long talk with Zilla? Six weeks ago, I believe. That is correct. Six weeks ago, a little before you came. So before Lockwood. Let's give you three points. So what are Catherine's words upon Linton's death? So Heathcliff asks, how do you feel, Catherine? And what is Catherine's response? Andrew. He's safe and I'm free. Mm -hmm. It's kind of grim. Yeah. You were so quick on the uptake. I'll give you four points for it. So while he's watching Kathy read, Harriton performs a very familiar, intimate gesture. What does he do? Oh, like he touches her hair? Oh, no. That is correct, Emmy. Oh. His attention became, by degrees, quite centered in the study of her thick, silky curls. Her face he couldn't see, and she couldn't see him. And perhaps not quite awake to what he did, but attracted like a child to a candle. At last he proceeded from staring to touching. He put out his hand and stroked one curl, as gently as if it were a bird. He might have stuck a knife into her neck. She started round in such a taking. So she's a little, little, little skeeved out by that. Uh, but yeah, I'll give you four points, Emmy. What is the name of the ballad that Catherine finds so funny when Harriton attempts to recite it? Daniel. The Ballad of che Chevy Chase. That is correct. Yeah, four points. We have a lot of four-pointers. I'm just in that kind of mood, I guess. Hmm. What kind of guest does Heathcliff admit can, quote, generally be made welcome? Daniel? One that's going to leave right away. <laughs> yes. I love that. Okay, I love the subtle burns in this novel. That's, that's one of my favorite parts about it. Sit down and take your dinner with us. This is Heathcliff. A guest that is safe from repeating his visit can generally be made welcome. So when Lockwood is uh, speaking to the, to the ostler at the public house, what produce passes by them? Oats. Oh. Emmy, you said it, but you didn't raise your hand. I'll give you a point for, for, for that. It was what was it? Rather impertinent. I'm... Oats. Oats. The ostler at a roadside public house was holding a pail of water to refresh my horses when a cart of very green oats newly reaped passed by. And they're from Gimmerton, which, which sets Lockwood off on his quest to rediscover Wuthering Heights. Uh, what is the title of the song? Nellie is singing in the kitchen, much to Joseph's consternation. Andrew? Uh, Fairy Annie's... It's Fairy Annie's something. And I had a whole... Well, 
I'll give you two preliminary points. Wedding. Does anyone? Oh, okay. All right. Wedding. Fairy Annie's, which does not exist as far as I could tell. Um, it's it's maybe either Emily Bronte or Nellie Dean got it confused with a folk ballad called Fair Annie, which does involve a wedding, but no fairies. That so. is correct, Andrew. Uh, so I'll give you three points for the answer and an additional two for that bonus little tidbit. I actually went down the same rabbit hole myself. and it's Songs <laughs> always make me go down rabbit holes when they're mentioned in books like these. So when did Heathcliff die? Emmy? Three months prior. Three months prior to... Just so the readers at home are... Oh, um, Lockwood arriving? Yeah. Which is... Or do you remember what arriving. month that was? Oh, shoot. Andrew? June. I think I counted backwards. Maybe I counted wrong. Well, I was asking what month Lockwood arrived, but uh, yeah. oh, what month Lockwood arrived? So, sorry, I thought you asked what month Heathcliff died. Um, because uh, Lockwood, I think, shows up in September. Yeah, that's correct. So, Emmy, I gave you three points for that, and Andrew, I gave you a point for the supplement. Can I take it as a suppository? Gross. <laughs> uh, when does Harrington have his gun accident? You can just do a search in your text for Kablooey. I think that's how Emily Bronte wrote the, wrote the incident. <laughs> I'm just going to time out on this one. Owing to an accident at the commencement of March, he became for some days a fixture in the kitchen. His gun burst while out on the hills by himself. By the way, a common mishap when you're dealing with black powder weapons. I mean, not, not common, common, didn't happen all the time, but this is not unheard of. Like, you know, today someone's Glock blowing up is... Unless you do something to it, it doesn't happen very much. But black powder weapons, if you, there's a lot of ways they can blow up. So just. This has been a public service announcement from Miss Charlotte's. If you're ever out devastating School the Moors Rangers. with antique black powder weaponry, <laughs> then you don't be like Harrod. <laughs> okay. Um, don't double charge your gun. God damn it. Last question. What does Harriton threaten to do if Catherine continues to plague him? Probably slap her. Isn't that what he always does? No. He says, go on plaguing me, and I'll step in yonder, so to where Heathcliff is, and say you worried me out of the kitchen. Now, fun fact, and maybe this is a bit of an impromptu uh, vocab corner entry. Um, who knows what worried means in this context andrew gnaw like chewing like worrying a bone like a dog worrying a bone yeah, to gnaw or in some context to like seize by the neck and shake um Ooh, it was sometimes used in the sense of to harangue or harass someone um so yeah you know the 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 the, the nursery rhyme the house that jack built where they have the part about the dog that worried the cat and there are, you know, illustrations that show, like, a dog barking up a tree at a mildly perturbed cat. No, it, it was the dog that f just fucking shook the cat half to death by the neck. Sorry, that's one of my favorite vocabulary words to, to bring up. Worry, in that sense. So yeah, uh, that's the end of the cathartic pop quiz. Wow, um, that was a fun one. Let's calculate some points here. So, uh, point time. Very close race. Very, very close. Um, in the lead with 11.5 is Daniel. 
Nice. Second place. Second place with 11 points, Emmy. And last place. I'm not counting Judy because she was absent for this portion, so it's an excused absence. But last place, Andrew, with 10 points. Is that three weeks in a row now that I'm the class dunce? You know what? It is. Three weeks, three episodes in a row. Wait, how many points did I have? How many points did I have? Three? Oh, yeah, ten. I had ten. Okay, I don't know. Very close race. Very close race. All right. I just feel like I should remind you to change the imaginary batteries for those imaginary Christmas yeah. lights. Yeah, I'll, I'm, they're in the charger right now. I'll just pop them back in when I'm when I'm done here. And uh, yeah, shameful. Okay, uh, so who's going to do the last response? It's either Andrew or Jury. Seems kind of mean to assign it to Jury when she's not here. Right, we should penalize the students who show up to class. That's what I do with my classes. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Well, in this case, it's more a matter of somebody has to do it. Yeah. I mean, how does, how does it sit with us just saying, Hey, Judy, uh, we all collectively decided that uh, you're going to do the homework for next week. And here's what it is, by the way. Oh, you what? wanted to say in that? Well, tough fucking luck. They don't get you don't get a say in it anyway. Um, I'm speaking of which I need to pull up that document. You can discuss which ones might be better suited to your particular talents, Andrew. I wish I'd known that earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's new. That's news, I think, to most of us. Anyway, I know it's irregular, but I think, Andrew, I would like to assign it to you just because you're here on the call. And it's it's fucking funnier this way, Andrew. Sure. I just I just want you to know this does mean that if we do a wrap up the wrap up episode, then Judy's doing the the whole book. (laughs) Okay, so Daniel, you want to assign something to Andrew? Okay. I'm gonna say um you can write your response from the point of view of someone who's traveled here from two thousand years in the future. (laughs) I've been curious to see how that one would play out. Yeah, I have no idea. Um well, okay. So next time I'll be doing the reader report. From the point of view of someone who has traveled here from 2,000 years in the future. The year 2000! Um, no. Uh, That's not how years work, Andrew. I know, I just wanted to say the year 2000! Alright, well, that takes our 10th episode, and maybe someone's arm, out with a bang. I'd like to thank Ms. Charlotte Sampson for all her intellectual judo this week. It's easy to have a new perspective on something when you're lying flat on your back. I would be remiss if I failed to thank my fellow readers, Drew uh, Ito, In Absentia, Emmy Doe, and Daniel Wishes. Daniel, by the way, has his own podcast called Weird Movie Club, which is weird and wonderful. Go have a listen to it. Just Google Weird Movie Club. They did Barton Fink as of this recording. That just dropped there two or three ago. Um, thanks to Rio Namiga for whatever I'm going to thank her for. Also, thanks to Akihiro Akane, who composed our theme tune. The show is edited by me thank you me and finally thanks to you you our listeners thanks for sticking with us through to episode 10 please subscribe rate and review if you want to support the podcast with your hard-earned yen dollars pounds or cowrie shells is that how you pronounce that cowrie cowrie 
Anyone? All right, cowrie shells. Head over to the Yokohama Theater Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation. Or better yet, at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Spotify. If you can do that there, the podcast platform of your choice. If you don't think this was a five-star podcast, just and finally, thanks to Emily Bronte, you twisted little woman. We'll be back in one week's time for episode 11. Check the show notes. See you then. The last is missed. Relationship and Heathcliff's final end um, in the next episode. But I don't know. I guess if I wanted to leave it somewhere for now. Not to get hung up on details, but are children attracted to candles? I mean, moths? Yes? Children? I guess... I guess it depends on the kid. What is yeah. how's Hammy? Does he love candles? Not I scented mean, ones. Not really. Smell, no. like, smell like vanilla. He went through a phase. Like he went yeah. through a phase, and now it's like you, you try to light the candle. He's like, it's too dark in here. Okay, we're we're getting too hung up on candle chat. Both been incredibly hurt by Heathcliff. Then they kind of they at least have that in common. And that's common ground enough for them to begin their relationship. Now we'll see how, for, how it plays out further. We see little hints already that Harriton. And then, and then it, it ends with like the the opening theme song, but like the sad version. The sad version. <laughs> Miss Charlotte's School for Wayward Readers. They, for some reason, hate cedars. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how it goes. That's, that's, that's pretty much it, yeah. That's pretty much it. This podcast is copyright 2020, the Yokohama Theatre Group. Our theme song was written by Akihiro Akane and is used with his permission.